Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham. I am the host of this weekly podcast where we explore the issues of our day through the lens of God's worldview. Uh, Finally, finally, I am bringing you part two of our series. I began over a month ago. It's amazing how uh, the month of March had hundreds of days in it, but we're back. And I'm not going to rehash part one of this episode. Instead, I'm just going to work from the assumption that everyone listening to this has listened to it. If not, or if you need a refresher, then stop this episode, go back to the one entitled Deconstructing the Deconversion of Retin Link, Part 1. But I do want to repeat one thing from that episode. Uh, this is less about Rhett and Link's story and more about what they represent, which is the increased frequency of deconversions from the Christian faith. Uh, the reason why Rhett and Link are a helpful way to pick up the topic is, quite honestly, because of the way they shared their deconversion. I haven't responded to a lot of other popular stories from the deconverted, like I am theirs, because others haven't done it like they did it, which leads me to begin uh, by just thanking and affirming them. Uh, they did not slander their past Christian faith, their Christian community, their parents, friends, and so forth, uh, nor did they demonstrate a bitterness to the Christian faith that they had left. Uh, this is this is very common among the deconverted, just like conversion to Christianity typically has with it a radical beginning that eventually gives way to a more humble, charitable, and nuanced faith. So we see the same thing um, with the deconversion from Christianity. It can begin with a very militant antagonism against Christianity and a ton of hot uh, public takes against Christianity in general and Christians in particular. And you just don't get that from Red Link. I think Rhett said he did go through that phase of somewhat militant atheism, but chose not to speak publicly while he was there, which I really appreciate. They chose to speak after they had clearly processed and struggled through a lot of things. And what that led to was what I felt was a very gracious, humble, kind, certainly vulnerable testimony of deconversion that has settled down into what they refer to as a hopeful agnosticism. And I thought to myself, now this I can engage with. Uh, The ones I like to dialogue with are those who have abandoned the faith but haven't traded the religion of militant Christianity for militant secularism. Uh, They're willing to dialogue, willing to listen, open to the plausibility of faith. In my experience, there are far more people like that. Um, For every atheist troll on Twitter, there are countless folks who, yes, have left Jesus but are humbly seeking still. Uh, Just like, by the way, for every obnoxious Christian troll on Twitter, there are countless Christians just humbly trying to do their best to follow Jesus and his command to love God and neighbor. So what I'm trying to say here is I'm engaging with Rhett and Link's story because I was so impressed by their story, not because I'm wanting to record some Christian apologetics gotcha. So that being said, let me tell you how I intend to respond. And it's, it's going to take more than this podcast to respond, but I will, I'll be better going forward. I don't intend to argue. I don't intend to debate every point that they made. I simply intend to do what I attempt to do whenever I engage with skeptics, which is to demonstrate that Jesus is the end to the seemingly unending quest for truth, beauty, and goodness. 
Truth, beauty, and goodness are what philosophers refer to as the transcendentals. Uh, the transcendentals are understood as the transcendent desires of humanity, not our instincts that we share with other living things like hunger for food, for instance, but those pursuits that are uniquely human endeavors. So my dog is not on a quest for truth, beauty, and goodness. She's on a quest for food and a tennis ball. But my children, on the other hand, whether they know it or not, will spend their lives searching, longing, dare I say, needing truth, beauty, and goodness. The transcendentals are, are the greater questions of life that science is ill-equipped to answer. They are the cracks in the secular that I spoke of in part one of this discussion. Now, according to Christian theology, God, of course, is the source of truth, beauty, and goodness. That is to say, uh, what we are searching for in the transcendentals is ultimately found in the transcendent God. God is the definition of truth, beauty, and goodness. And so any quest for these things is not fully satisfied until that quest ends in God, until, as C.S. Lewis says, you trace the sunbeam back to the sun. Now, why am I saying all this? Well, in the same way that people convert to Christianity because they discover it to be the answer to their quest for truth, beauty, and goodness, likewise, people deconvert from Christianity because they discover it not to be the answer to truth, beauty, and goodness. And so they leave it behind and search for another answer. And I don't blame them. If you become convinced that Christianity is not true, that it's not beautiful, that it's not good, then leave it. Leave it behind and look elsewhere. Now, returning to Rhett and Link, what I found compelling about their stories is that they articulated in very, again, very compelling ways, the struggle that people have with Christianity's truth, beauty, and goodness. So in Rhett's story, it seemed to be more of an issue of truth. In Link's story, it seemed to be more of an issue with beauty. I know that's a generalization, and they both struggled in similar ways, but I think that's a fair assessment of their stories that they would agree with. And then together, it seemed, they both had an issue with Christianity's goodness, and this came out when they talked about the concept of hell and certainly sexual ethics in particular. So they really did a good job of articulating what I think people struggle with when it comes to whether Christianity is good. And really nowadays, it comes down to the idea of judgment, the judgment of God, and it certainly comes down to sexual ethics. And then Rhett does a really good job articulating people's struggles with truth, and Link does a really good job articulating people's struggles with beauty. And so in responding to Rhett's story, I think I can offer a response to those who struggle with the truth of Christianity. In responding to Link's story, I think I can uh, offer a response to those who struggle with the beauty of Christianity, and then taking up their struggles with hell and sexuality, I can offer a response to those struggles with the goodness of Christianity. And so that's the challenge I would like to pick up, not necessarily for Rhett and Link themselves, again, but for those who see themselves in Rhett and Link's story in particular. And one might resonate with you more than another. And so in this episode, again, there will be more to come, but barring another unforeseen event like a global pandemic, I'm actually going to be able to do them in consecutive weeks. But today, I'm going to be taking up Rhett's story and his struggle with truth. Now, let me restate what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to take every argument that he makes and offer a rebuttal. This has been the nature of almost every response that I have read or listened to, and I just don't think that's helpful. For every argument, there's a counter-argument. For every expert, there's a countering expert. And that's why these arguments, particularly online, never go anywhere except to reinforce one's own position. 
So I have no interest in taking every doubt he had along his journey of deconversion and offer an answer. He himself has even said, in essence, stop sending me your answers to my doubts. I've read them all, and I'm sure he has. So if you want those answers, then Google awaits. For instance, evolution, let me explain why I think this is an unhelpful way to come at it. So evolution was a big part of his story and what got him going down the journey of doubt. And I'm just not going to go there. First, because I'm not a scientist. I'm a trained theologian. But also because you can firmly believe the evolutionary process as guided by God and be a Christian. I'm ordained in one of the most theologically concerted denominations in the country. We have young earth creation folks, and we have theistic evolution folks. And we've got everyone in between. The most prominent minister in our denomination is Tim Keller. Tim Keller believes in the biological evolutionary process while rejecting the grand theory of evolution as an unguided accident that arose by chance out of nothing. Now, if Tim Keller isn't a Christian with orthodox theology, then I don't know who is. And no, that's not Christianity adjusting to post-Enlightenment data, by the way. You can go all the way back to the 4th century and St. Augustine's interpretation of Genesis, and you will find an interpretation of Genesis that makes room for an extraordinarily old earth open to gradual processes of created order. Anyway, I'm, I'm already getting carried away with what I didn't intend to do. My point is that I just don't think, quote-unquote, debunking every doubt that Rhett or any skeptic has is the best response that Christians can make. So how can I defend the truth of Christianity without arguing my case on all of these finer points? That's really easy. I intend to defend the truth of Christianity the same way I will defend the beauty and the goodness of Christianity, with Jesus. At the end of the day, he is our apologetic. He is our defense. He is our answer to every question. You see, what's uniquely compelling about Christian theology is that we believe the fullness of God became man in Jesus Christ, meaning this, the transcendentals became flesh and dwelt among us, to quote the Apostle John. You could even argue his interpretation of, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word there is is logos, in the beginning was the logos. You can argue from the ancient understanding of the word logos that he was arguing for, basically, in the beginning was the transcendentals. In the beginning was truth, beauty, and goodness, and this was with God, and this was God. And then that became flesh. These realities became flesh and dwelt among us. So now in Jesus, we get to behold the living embodiment of truth, beauty, and goodness transcendent ideas became an incarnate person. Therefore, Christian argumentation must begin and end with Jesus of Nazareth. What is true? Jesus. What is beautiful? Jesus. What is good? Jesus. And so in speaking to all three, what I intend to do as best I can is put forth Jesus as my answer to all of these. He is my ultimate apologetic to the Christian faith. In this episode, let's explore Jesus as fullness of truth. By the way, when I speak of truth, I'm speaking of the question of ultimate truth, philosophical truths that go beyond the realm of the physical sciences, yet upon which the physical sciences rely. I'm talking truth in the sense of that vexing question that Pilate proposed to Jesus, what is truth? So ironic to ask that question while truth is standing before him. You see, truth is more elusive than we assume. It certainly cannot be obtained by the process of Cartesian doubt that we discussed in the last episode. 
A Cartesian doubt never yields the certainty it promises, and it only ends in uncertainty. And I think Rhett himself has discovered this. He said that his process of doubt, and you can see him follow that Cartesian model as he tells a story, that his process of doubt has left him simply saying, in essence, I don't know, and I have to be okay with that. That's the postmodern response to modernism's doubt process. Because at the end of the day, Cartesian doubt just leads to perpetual doubt and uncertainty about everything. Rene Descartes, and it's named after him, Cartesian, Descartes, the father of doubt himself proved this point when he tried to apply his model to his own existence. Doubt everything until you arrive at empirical truth. That's the way of Descartes. Okay, well then doubt your existence and see if you can empirically prove that you exist. And he tried it. And his final conclusion was his famous statement, I think, therefore I am. But even that cannot be empirically proven. And so the point I'm making is that truth is a big problem, philosophically speaking. In fact, the word confidence itself is the convergence of two words, con, which means with, and fide, which means faith. So when we say we are confident of something, we are saying we believe it to be true, con fide, with faith. And nowhere does the dilemma of truth feel more elusive than when it comes to transcendent questions. Is there a God? If so, which God is true? What happens after we die? These questions that have haunted humanity throughout its entire history and yet seemingly cannot be answered with any amount of certainty. But now let us return to Jesus and the Christian conviction that in him the transcendentals have become flesh to dwell among us. If that's true, then we now know what is true, because truth is now embodied. Jesus is utterly unique. What we find in him is transcendence experienced, the unseen source of truth becoming for us observable truth. There is a very interesting moment between Rhett and Link where they were wrestling with this very issue. Let me play a clip for us and then respond. This is, this is from their podcast, Ear Biscuits. That's the name of their podcast. But this podcast was a follow-up to their deconversion podcast where they answered some of their listeners' questions, follow-up questions. Listen first here to Rhett. Um, but one of the things that's kind of struck me about just the enterprise of Christian apologetics is that the whole idea is that you can use basically logic and reason to make a defense of the Christian faith, to make it seem reasonable and logical. But it feels like, you know, and take the take the uh, the issue of the resurrection, which is kind of the linchpin of the whole thing, right? So there's plenty of people who have written books, and I've read them, uh, some of them, about why the basically the best explanation of the events around Jesus' resurrection is that he actually bodily raised from the dead. It explains the empty tomb and explains the start of the early church, yada, 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 right? I've heard the arguments. But I find it interesting that the best defense of the resurrection, which is a miraculous, unbelievable, unreasonable, illogical event, is to use logic and reason to try to make it seem like it actually happened. To me, the resurrection is the ultimate test of faith. It is saying, I'm gonna believe something 
That is unbelievable. Isn't that what makes it a beautiful thing to believe from the standpoint of faith? He is making a very important critique of Christian apologetics, one that Charles Taylor himself makes in a secular age. Here's his point. Stay with me here. Christian apologetics in many ways is itself a concession, a concession to post-Enlightenment secularism, meaning it's playing by the rules of the Enlightenment. It's trying to use logic and reason to defend what in the end we cannot comprehend. It's an epistemological fallacy is what it is. It assumes that man's reason and knowledge is the highest reality and the final arbiter of truth, meaning it can't be true if we can't explain it and can't understand it. But who conceded that? God, by definition, cannot be understood fully. Transcendence, by definition, exists outside the realm of the imminent frame that we discussed in part one. So in many ways, Christian apologetics diminishes the grandeur of Christianity's truth by trying to um, minimize the truth into something that fits the demands of the Enlightenment. Perhaps an illustration would help here. On Easter Sunday, the pastors of our church delivered flowers to our seniors. And we got so many kind messages from them saying, thank you so much. I felt so loved, um, noticed, appreciated. It lifted my spirits and so forth. Well, suppose one of those seniors was a botanist by trade, someone who studies the biology of plants. And from this senior, we got this message. Thank you so very much for the amazing specimen you left me. I'm not allowed to be in my lab right now because of the virus, and I was able to examine the specimen under a microscope and have made some fascinating biological discoveries that may even help us in the fight against the virus. Now here's the question of questions. Who understood the flower more? In one sense, the botanist knows it in a way no other senior knows it. But in another sense, the botanist doesn't understand it at all. And all the other seniors got it. That is to say, they understood the meaning of the flower, a meaning that transcends what shows up in a laboratory. This is the point Rhett is making about apologetics. Stop trying to reason your way into faith. Stop trying to take the miraculous and put it under a microscope. Let faith be faith. Let it be beautiful. Let God be inscrutable. Let mystery be mystery. Because those things are real. Those things are as real as logic and reason. And he is making a fantastic point. But when it comes to Jesus, let faith be faith isn't the whole story. You see, his argument is that we shouldn't try to make the resurrection reasonable because it's not reasonable. We just need to let it be this amazing, mysterious miracle that we believe by faith. But then now listen to Link's response as he interrupts Rhett. Isn't that what makes it a beautiful thing to believe from the standpoint of faith? But if it really happened, everything around, you could have logical, historical, philosophical, cultural analysis of it. Now Link is making a good point. It's true, there is no logical analysis of the resurrection to be done. You cannot logically analyze a miracle. But there can be a logical analysis of whether it happened. 
we can study the historical evidence to determine the truth of the event itself, which is what I tried to do in my last podcast. And it's that tension that they are struggling with that makes Jesus so compelling and unique. This is really what captured C.S. Lewis and converted him from his atheism to Christianity. You see, C.S. Lewis was a lover of stories and myths, as you probably know. But he assumed, like we all rightly assume, that by definition, the stories that he loved were untrue. But his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, you may have heard of him, he took Lewis's love of stories and he asked him to consider that perhaps they weren't as untrue as he supposed. Tolkien proposed that myths, that fairy tales as he called them, were of course untrue, but not completely untrue. That these stories that we love to tell ourselves, stories of supernatural realities and supernatural battles, of good triumphing over evil, of escaping death and living forever, of tragedy giving way to victory, of hope triumphing over defeat, these are not merely a way of coping with our reality, but instead speak to a far greater reality that we are all a part of. Meaning it's not just that we want these things to be true. Something inside us knows that they should be true and will prove true in the end. In other words, our fairy tales are of course untrue, but they point to something that absolutely is true. And what if the true fairy tale broke through into our reality of empirical evidence? If so, then we have discovered the one true myth, as C.S. Lewis called the gospel after his conversion. We have discovered the one true myth to which all other myths point. And the Christian claim is that in Jesus, this is what the world has indeed discovered. You see, our writers and our scientists are each only telling half the story. The quest for ultimate truth demands both be satisfied. Well, what if the partial truth of our desires for something beyond that our storytellers speak to could converge together with the partial truth of our desire for evidence that our scientists speak to? That is to say, what if higher truth became observable truth? Then, and only then, do we have our answer to the question of questions, what is truly true? Well, in Jesus, the two have become one. The invisible has become visible. He is fully God and fully man. Assuming, of course, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And that might be too big of an assumption for my skeptical friends. I, I think one thing we can all agree upon is that Jesus, his claim is the greatest claim the world has ever known. Not a messenger of God's truth, but the manifestation of God's truth. But I do know that skeptics like Rhett would at this point turn to New Testament critical scholarship. And perhaps in another podcast, that one particular doubt I will address, because I know it's so important that how do we know what we're reading is Jesus. But suffice to say that I think any skeptic that's being intellectually honest will have to admit that New Testament scholarship is historically compelling, certainly more compelling than any other ancient document we trust. The two most prominent and influential New Testament historians of our time are N.T. Wright, who I talked about in my last podcast, he's a believer, and Bart Ehrman, um, who is a skeptic, who Rhett admitted had an impact on his thinking. 
you can go down the Google rabbit hole of comparing and contrasting their scholarship and thoughts. But I personally believe that if you do that without bias, mind you, and more, more so because we all come out with bias, without the presupposition that the supernatural is off the table, that cannot be an explanation. If you do that, then I, I think you will find N.T. Wright's scholarship more compelling. But if you are looking for one definitive resource on the reliability of the New Testament, I think I mentioned this in my last podcast, I'm not sure, but I would commend to you uh, Richard Bauckham's massively important work, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. But regardless, if the New Testament account of Jesus and the church is not reliable, then one has to make the massively difficult case that this extraordinary claim of Jesus— this, this extraordinary story as God incarnate, crucified, risen from the dead, that it was all made up. And when I behold Jesus, his claims and accomplishments, I just come away saying, you can't make this stuff up. As Cambridge historical scholar Peter Williams says it, either there are multiple literary geniuses behind the New Testament story or Jesus is the genius. Meaning some really brilliant innovative thinkers and authors conspired together to imagine what is unimaginable, to think up the unthinkable and pulled it off, or the simplest explanation is true. Jesus is who he claimed to be. And then, of course, there is the massively significant issue of the resurrection. Jesus is our ultimate apologetic, and his ultimate apologetic is his empty tomb. And that is why before this podcast, I recorded the podcast on the historical reliability of the resurrection, which you can go back and listen to for yourself. I just didn't want to lump those two in, but I knew how important that apologetic was to the truth of Jesus. So, what is truth? Again, to quote Pilate, is there an end to this seemingly unending quest for truth that we all find ourselves on? My answer is Jesus. I cannot get past Jesus. And he is who I offer to skeptics like Rhett, who value truth so much. And when we behold the truth that is Jesus, what we discover is the most beautiful truth the world has ever known. Because if Jesus is true, then everything we want to be true will prove true in the end. Which leads us to our next podcast discussion. Jesus isn't just true. Jesus is beautiful. But for today, thanks for listening. I would really love a five-star rating. I got my first one-star rating I saw. A little piece of me died with that. I would love for you to uh, give us a five-star rating and leave a review on Apple iTunes uh, so that others, it it helps uh, get this content to others, makes it more accessible. And uh, we'll be back next week for another episode of Every Square Inch. (music) 